It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham as we edge ever closer to a new Prime Minister for this country. Unfortunately, it's not going to be any of the gang of five that turned up for a debate at Channel 4 last night. Boris Johnson was the clear winner after sidestepping the event, which seemed entirely geared towards hoisting Remainer Rory Stewart further up the ladder of public recognition. He gurned and wriggled his way through the contest, declaring himself to be human, which is debatable, flawed almost certainly, and someone who frequently changes his mind because he apparently thinks. Setting out his stall as the vulnerable candidate without an ego is a calculated stunt to appeal to the stupid people who might think he's trying to introduce us to a new kind of politics. He's as anti-democratic as it comes and he certainly won't be delivering Brexit for the people. And in any event, the whole point of this particular debate was to appeal to the general public who don't actually have a vote in the Tory party leadership election. Meanwhile, the second ballot is just one day away. Will there be any serious threat to Boris Johnson? Seems unlikely, doesn't it? Uh, Robot Rob, Gove the Cove, Team Sag, uh, and of course there's Jeremy. 03444991000. Meanwhile, Tory donors are said to be in secret talks with Nigel Farage about making some kind of electoral pact if there is a snap general election. And Labour's deputy leader, Tom Watson, will today urge the party to make a clear step towards reversing Brexit with the words Labour members are in fact remain. 03444991000 plus we'll be talking about privacy law snooping charters and why we are being spied upon in so many different ways in this country. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there will be many of you who didn't bother watching the Channel 4 debate last night. They were stupid enough to put an empty chair there, uh, marking the space for the man who, in fact, is so far ahead in the race um, that it seemed obvious that this was very much 
a competition for who might come second or who else could get their name onto the ballot. Uh, we heard Bill Cash on the Julie Hartley Brewer show this morning saying, actually, it was rather clever of Boris Johnson to stay away from the first TV debate. One, because it was on Channel 4, where they would almost certainly have tried to rig the questions towards uh, anyone who didn't like Boris Johnson. Two, it made it look as though he was over and above and higher than those other people who were trying to sort of fight amongst themselves as to try and get on the ballot to fight him as well. And of course, also, because it was such a kind of a numb competition where nothing really was decided, where Rory Stewart made himself out to be the people's candidate and sort of tried to make out that his ego was smaller than everybody else's, which, of course, is complete and utter balderdash. So there was lots of things to learn about it, uh, but it doesn't really matter in the end because Boris Johnson, barring any kind of major accident, is going to be the next Prime Minister of this country. But let's talk to Peter Bone, Conservative MP uh, for Wellingborough, uh, about what happens next because the second ballot takes place, of course, tomorrow, and it could well be that we end up with only two, certainly no more than three candidates going forward. Peter, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Now, I don't know what you make of my summation of last night's events, but it was a rather second division sort of attempt at, uh, at wrestling power from one another, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I forced myself to watch it. And I, the thing I thought, well, two things, really, I suppose. I thought it was incredibly dull. Yeah. And, and I thought the audience was completely... Uh, well, I doubt if you found a Conservative in the audience. Well, no. Because of, it was a really biased audience. And I thought well, that, it was Channel that, 4, Peter, for heaven's sake, you know. Yeah, but it's supposed to be conservative members who are going to elect the new, you know, new leaders. And why didn't that put? They said they were supposed to be conservative leaning in the audience, which they certainly wasn't. Right. I mean, Channel Four is a, uh, has has a reputation for being anti-conservative and anti-Boris, and it lived up to that reputation entirely. Yes, it absolutely does. And I mean, the weird thing as well is it's all very well for Rory Stewart to walk around and make out that he's you know different from everybody else. And you know, I, I, I put out a tweet last night when he said that you know it's not about me, it's about we. He's actually the most me. Um, candidate in the entire race because all he does is walk around asking people to talk to me and all he does is talk about how he's going to be different from everybody else because it's all about him you know he, he's kind of he's trying to play this sort of you know I'm the kinder gentler face of conservatism but he's not really a conservative at all is he? Well I, certainly I, I won't be voting for him um, he, he, he he represents I think a very small uh, proportion of conservative opinion Um uh, and I, I think he he is different and um, from from the other candidates. That's for sure. But sometimes you think he'd, he'd be happier addressing a Liberal Democrat. Audience. Well, yes, quite. Him and Dominic <laughs> Grieve. We won't get into Dominic Grieve just for the moment. So, will he? Will his kind of creed occur have made any inroads into the parliamentary party, which is basically all we're talking about for the next twenty four hours? Because the next ballot will be held. It'll be held between those MPs in Westminster and no one else. So has he, will he, will he have turned anyone, do you think? I don't think he would have made any, uh, I don't think he would have made any difference at all. And I can't see him getting the 33 MPs that he needs to get to, to move forward into the, 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 the next round. I mean, he, yeah, I think he had, what, 19, was it, in the first round? Something like that. I, I just don't see that uh, Yeah, I think he needs 14 more, doesn't he, to get to the magic yeah, 33. Yeah, and I, and I just, I just can't see that happening. And, um, uh, we really do need to rapidly move to um, serious contenders for the leadership. And to, uh, to be perfectly frank, I don't think he is a serious contender. Right. And do you think that there's going to need to be a third ballot? Because ideally, presumably, for the Boris Johnson supporters, you'd like to get on with it as soon as possible. Um, and you'd rather just have one opponent rather than another two or three. 
Yeah, I want to get to the stage where there's property, proper scrutiny of the two final candidates. Um, I think there's 17 hustings around the country, uh, more TV debates, definitely, I, I guess, more interviews. And they, the two candidates need to be tested. And I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it is going to be Boris. I mean, I hope he's the next one, next prime minister, but he's got to go through this this tough scrutiny and the sooner we can get to that the better i mean we will be at that stage by thursday at the latest so it's not it's not many days away but um uh as you say a number of candidates might drop out after tomorrow's vote of course yes of course do you expect any to drop out before tomorrow's vote because they may fear being humiliated no i i i i think they're past the deadline when they were could pull out i think that was on friday and they're going to go forward and I guess see how they come out. I would, I, you know, I think Rory Stewart will be eliminated. Um, whether any others will, it's difficult to say at this stage. Yes, okay. And as far as the Boris Johnson vote is concerned, because it's one of those, as somebody once described to me, you know, politicians don't even tell the truth to each other, which is not meant in any way as any kind of insult to you. Um, is it likely that that some of the original uh, votes for Boris in the first ballot could move somewhere else just to keep it interesting? Well, it can. I mean, that's part of the process and you know candidates say things and they they attract people one way or the other but my guess is that boris's vote will increase um tomorrow um and i think that uh i mean we've had i think matt hancock and estimate they who two of the two good conservative leadership candidates who pulled out um i think they've endorsed boris which is a good sign um but there is a significant part of the Conservative Party that wants somebody other than Boris, so we shall see what happens. But that's why there has to be a proper debate in the country amongst Conservative members, proper debate, proper scrutiny, and that's that's what, how we'll get the, the best leader for, for, for the country, um, and that'll be in about a month or so's time. And Matt Hancock has already given his um, uh, blessing to Boris Johnson. I know it doesn't quite work as, as straightforwardly as this, but does that mean you would expect most of his votes to go towards Boris? No, I don't think it works like that. It definitely doesn't work like that at, at all. I mean, every individual member is uh, will make his mind up. They, they won't follow who they necessarily who they voted for. I, I, I would expect some of Matt Hancock's voters to go to Boris, uh, to Boris, but also to... Jeremy Hunt and, and Michael Gove, and um, I think that's, and it's how that will all. What we, what will be interesting tomorrow is to see who is in second place. I think, yes. and, and that, and that, that's the interesting. And it's not clear at the moment who that's going to be. Well, as I said, I mean, um, interesting. It was Bill Cash that said this this morning on, on Julie Hartley Brewer's show that it was apparently quite a good thing for Boris not to go there, not just for his own purposes, but for the purposes of the party, because everybody could then see who would be the best candidate to perhaps be on the ballot uh, against Boris. But not only that, but but perhaps who would be the best person to sort of team up with him, as it were, as, in the senior cabinet. Yeah, I thought I, I think it, it did feel a little bit like. Um, people are fighting for second place. Um, and I thought, um, I mean, none of them did badly, but, well, maybe Roy Skewart, but none of them in sort of... But nobody, nobody shone either, I didn't no. think. I mean, Dominic Rabb was very good, but... He, he, came, he came across as a little bit wooden, and, and it looked at times as though people were kind of ganging up on him. And I don't know if you can tell me the answer to this, but they kept referring to him as Dom, which seemed to me to be slightly kind of... Um, almost Mickey-taking, like he didn't want to be called Dom, but they just kept calling him that. 
Yeah, I know. I, I don't remember. I mean, the point is, he was the only true Brexiteer in that group, and the Remainers ganged up on him. Right. So, you know, if, if, if I could pick someone to be in the final with Boris, because I can't, I would pick Dominic Rabb because okay. I think he's a real, you know, he'll get us out of the EU. But I think maybe it's just come a little bit early for him in his career. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think he will be one day Prime Minister, but, mm. but maybe this time uh, it is a little bit too soon. Because, but, but, but I mean, also, if Boris had turned up, it would, I mean, you could see the, the, the kind of the lie of the land, if you like, beforehand, where uh, those two uh, women who had been attacked on a bus were interviewed by Channel 4, they were fed lines about Boris Johnson, they came out and said they didn't like him. You know, I mean, you could see uh, that Christian Gurumurthy as well was, was kind of ready for the wind-up, if you like. And if Boris had been there, I think it would have been a lot more vitriolic and a lot more bear-baiting style. Yeah, I don't think Channel 4's reputation uh, has been enhanced at all because that is... It is... It's so clearly anti-conservative, so clearly anti-Brexit, so clearly anti-Boris that I, I think it was right for him not to turn up. I think it's right he's doing the BBC one uh, tomorrow, which will be really interesting. But um, there'll be less candidates and there'll be obviously the ones that have now got more chance of being become prime minister. So it'll be a, a better debate. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, Channel 4 is, 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 is clearly biased unfortunately and um you know it came out last night again and also there is something to it if there are too many people on the stage you really never get a sense of what they're saying i remember that that one from the last general election when there was about seven people up there and they had literally had sort of 90 seconds to answer every question and you can't possibly judge people on that yeah that's correct i mean i i've introduced a bill in parliament to have a commission to set up uh, televised leadership debates in the general election, which I think there should be. But I think they should be between uh, the Prime Minister and the main leader of the opposition, and that they should be proper debates, to, where, where each of the two leaders can challenge each other and a uh, proper debate. Um, as you say, when you've got six or seven people, it becomes, uh, you know, a few seconds for each of them. And it it doesn't really work. I, I, I have to go back to that. I, you know, I'm interested in politics. I'm in, in Westminster. But I did find it rather dull. No, quite. Now, let's talk about something which is rather exciting, and that is on the front page of Telegraph today. Tory donors in secret talks with Farage over electoral pact. We're going to talk about this later on the show. But what do you make of this, Peter? A Sunday Times poll puts the Brexit party in first place in a general election. Um, talk in this uh, particular story about how Tory party donors may have... Uh, the ability to enter a sort of pact with Farage to say if Brexit party candidates are running in one place, the Tories won't run against them? Uh, well, first of all, when, when a paper has something that says it's secret talks, well, they're clearly not secret talks if the paper <laughs> knows about it. So, and that sounded to me... Sounds total, good, though. It sounds good. It sounded like a total media story. Really? I, I don't believe any of that. I mean, absolutely, the Brexit party is... Uh, leading in the polls at the moment has got a, a, a really strong position because the Conservative Party has failed to deliver Brexit. But of course, if we get to the 31st of October and, and Prime Minister Johnson has delivered a proper Brexit, then the need for the Brexit Party um, goes away. That, that's the big challenge. If we don't, if we don't deliver a, 
a real clean Brexit on the 31st of October, the Brexit Party's uh, going to do a lot of damage to to the Conservative Party, and and, and they, with, with some justification, we have to deliver what we promised we were sure. going to do. And of course, at that point, uh, there is. I mean, I've spoken to other Tory MPs who've said openly to me on this show. You know, we will have to make a decision about Nigel Farage whether we allow him to continue to damage Conservative Party hopes, uh, or in some way do some kind of deal. Well, I don't think it will come today if we deliver Brexit. I mean, I think there is a, an argument. Well, it depends on the Brexit, doesn't it? It does. That's why I, you know, if I was um, Prime Minister, I would, uh, I would get all the people who are supporting Brexit, whether they're the DUP or certain Labour Party members or MPs or, um, or, or the Brexit Party, get them all to work together bring us into, you know, have a united front for Brexit and, and go to Brussels and say, look, I've got all these people that are demanding a proper Brexit. Let, let's get on and do a, a proper job. I don't see why people who, you know, when I was campaigning the referendum, I've, I created Grassroots Out and we brought people from all parties, uh, the DUP, Sammy Wilson, Kate Hoey from Labour and Nigel Farage from, from then from UKIP and David Davis from the Conservatives, Liam Fox. And, you know, we had a cross-party mm. approach to, to coming out of the EU. But since we've since we've, the referendum has been done, it seems now it's only a Conservative approach to coming out of the EU that's acceptable. Why, why not harness all people who believe in coming out? And well, that must be a stronger position. Well, so, I would have thought so. I said this months ago, you know, people laughed at me. I said, you know, a sort of coalition of Brexiteers would make a lot more sense than having two parties arguing with each other from five different different perspectives, you know? Because today yeah. we're going to hear Tom Watson standing up and making a speech calling for uh, the Labour Party to go a full speed ahead for a second referendum and to stop Brexit because they are apparently the party of Remain. And yet Jeremy Corbyn doesn't seem to agree. No, and that's a huge split. I was quite surprised. I mean, obviously, if the Labour Party um, became the Remain Party and the Conservatives was the true Brexit Party, it would be slightly easier for the electorate. But um, I think there's a lot of... Well, I think Tom Watson speaks only for a part of the Labour Party because I know there are many, many Labour voters uh, who actually believe passionately in Brexit. So um, I, I think that would be a mistake for the Labour Party. And But, you know, that's up to them. Absolutely right. Well, Peter, um, do you expect it to be finished tomorrow then? Do you think it will just get uh, two left or will there be more? Oh, I don't think it'll be finished tomorrow. No, I, um, I, we, we're scheduled to have votes Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. We finished by Thursday. But tomorrow I'd be surprised um, because there's this tussle going on between um, Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove to see who's in second place. So that will probably probably carry on until at least Wednesday. OK. Peter, thanks very much for your time. Peter Thank Bone, you. Conservative MP for Wellingborough, uh, says it's up to the Labour Party to sort out their own Brexit position, which I think is entirely right. We'll be talking about that coming up later on. Steve McCabe is going to be joining us, Labour MP for Birmingham, Selly Oak. It is a complete mess. It's still a complete mess. And, of course, uh, coming up, we might actually hear from some of the debate from last night. This is Talk Radio. I'll take your calls next. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far <laughs> enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio, at IROMG. You can text us as well uh, to 87222. Uh, start your message with the word talk. That'll cost you 25p plus your standard network rate. You might be uh, forgiven for thinking that the Tory party was in a bit of a mess, but it's trying to get a new leader. You might be forgiven for thinking the Lib Dems are in a bit of a mess, but they're going to try and get a new leader as well. Never been more successful since Vince Cable said that he was going to step down. Uh, and of course, the Labour Party, according to Tom Watson, its deputy leader, says they now need a clear anti-Brexit position, uh, which presumably is not clear at the moment. Let's talk to Steve McCabe, uh, Labour MP for Birmingham, Sellio, and find out what is going on inside the Labour Party. Steve, very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning. So, um, Tom Watson says you need a clear anti-Brexit position. What's the position at the moment? Well, the Labour position at the moment is that uh, we we are saying we think we could negotiate a better deal than the Tories and that uh, we'd like a general election uh, and feeling that we'd like uh, a a vote on the final outcome of the Brexit negotiations. That's the position. It's clearly a position that didn't do terribly well during the European elections. And I think uh, what Tom Watson is saying is that uh, if we're going to end up having a Boris Johnson premiership forced on us, then Labour have got to offer people a much clearer choice, a choice between what Boris would do and what Labour could do. And it's painfully obvious that an awful lot of Labour members and voters don't think the Boris course of action or the current Labour course of action is the one they want to pursue. I mean, the Labour members' position, according to Tom Watson, is that their hearts are remained. Do you think he's right about that? I think he's right now. I'm not sure that's always been the case, and there are actually some who still don't see it that way. I'd be the first to accept that. But I think what has become more and more obvious and was very evident during the European elections was that as it's become abundantly clear that almost everything that Boris and co promised in 2016 has turned out to be nonsense, then I think Labour has returned to a much more Remain-focused position. I, I think that has happened, yeah. But what about um, the momentum side of the debate? Because we keep hearing all the time that there are those in the Labour Party who would rather see a no-deal Brexit because a no-deal Brexit would cause the calamity uh, economically, which is what they would like to see to bring down the government. Well, I mean, there may be people who argue that. Fortunately, I don't have too many dealings with them myself. As <laughs> I mean, I realise that. that's a bit of a tinfoil hat position, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's not something that, you know, I, I can't really, you know, it's a bit like saying let's burn down the house and hope that we get a better deal later yeah. on. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, I, I kind of can't imagine any, anyone who should be treated seriously would actually argue that. But, that, you know, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful positions. And, of course, the Boris Johnson position on... Uh, no deal, which is not the position he took when he was arguing during the referendum. His position is a crock of lies as well. Well, that's, those are dangerous words you're speaking there, Steve. I mean, you could be accused of telling lies. All politicians could be accused of telling lies, but, I mean, that's another story. What about yeah, though, but I don't go out and campaign with a bus and put my lies on the side of it, do I? Come on. Well, it wasn't a lie, actually, Steve. In fact, it was an underestimation, but we could argue about that until the cows come home. You know, you see, you've already, you've already, you've already conceded it. You've already conceded it. But the point is, what your position that you just read out to me as what the Labour position is now isn't really a position. Because it's it's a it's a collection of about five different things. So Labour hasn't, oh, well, had, a, I mean, hasn't, had, a, hasn't had a position, has it? No, you asked me what 
what I thought Tom Watson was doing. And actually, what I think Tom Watson's doing is actually in the tradition of Labour deputy leaders. Prescott to Tony Blair, Harriet Harman to Gordon Brown. It's about offering the leader a bit of alternate advice based on what the membership seem to be saying and the supporters in the country uh, need to be saying. It's a foil to the danger that the leader gets too many close advisors around them who get too attached to ideas that have run out of sense. And I think Tom is doing exactly what we elect deputies for. Yes, no, I don't doubt that. But, I mean, I'm not sure if they even speak to each other, do they, in, in terms of him offering him alternatives. I mean, he's offering him an alternative on a platform where he's making a speech in Westminster rather than actually sitting down in a room with him and saying it because, um, as far as I know, they don't sit down in rooms together. Well, I, I have to confess, I have no idea who talks to who in the upper echelons of the Labour Party at the moment. Mm. I'm not party to it myself, so... I have no idea who has cosy discussions, who doesn't discuss at all, or who engages in a bit of megaphone. I, I really don't know the answer to that. And who will be the final arbiter, really? Because one of the reasons for Tom Watson doing this is, is for self-preservation of the Labour Party because of what happened uh, in European elections, because of the position of the Labour Party. You know, they ended up coming third. Um, they've, they've had pretty bad... I mean, they've just about won Peterborough, but the jury apparently is still out on that, pending a police investigation. And, you know, we, it seems as though... The, the muddle over Brexit has harmed the Labour Party. Well, it's harmed both parties. We we know that. And uh, uh, so far, uh, Nigel Farage has been the beneficiary, but it would appear that Boris Johnson is going to be the Tory party beneficiary. I, I, think, I think the point is that if we are going to have a general election, we can fairly safely assume that Boris is going to go for one quite quickly and he's going to say... I need a majority to do whatever it is he claims he's going to do. If people do not want to be saddled with that kind of Johnson premiership and that kind of deal that he is going to offer, then the alternate has got to be Labour offering something clearly and distinctly different. And I think all uh, Tom Watson is doing is spelling that out. Yes, because I mean, I've always said that there's not much point in having a general election if you don't have two clear choices. I mean, if you've got a Labour Party which is split on Brexit versus a Tory party which is split on Brexit, we're not, we're not going to get anywhere, are we? Yeah, and I think that, I mean, it, you know, like prior to, to uh, uh, the, the, the Tory leadership race that's now on, uh, it is fair to actually say that if we'd had a general election, we'd probably have had another stalemate. I mean, I think the, the point is that Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister will offer one very clear, hard-right choice, and people will be looking for a very clear alternative to that. So the time for Labour to recognise for its own voters and supporters, all those folk I spoke to during the European election, members crying, saying... I'm really sorry, but I can't vote Labour this time. Those kind of people are looking for a place to go. And either we recognise they're our supporters and we have to respond to what they want, or they're going somewhere else. But if, but, if, but if you keep referring to Boris Johnson's hard right, that's going to harm you guys even more, isn't it, Steve? Because the people, for example, Labour voters in the northeast of England have voted now twice uh, to leave the European Union. In the European elections, they voted very strongly for Brexit and the Brexit Party. They did not vote for the Labour Party. And in the same way, they voted to leave in the referendum. And so the Labour Party claims to represent these people, but clearly doesn't. 
Well, two points I'd make about that. The first one is I'd say those people are fundamentally Labour. They're not fundamentally Boris Johnson-type people. I would say, given a straight choice in a general election, they are fundamentally Labour. No, they're fundamentally Brexit, to, aren't they? I'd also have to say... Look, I would have to be the first to admit to you, Mike, you're, you're never going to be in a position where you're going to have 100% support, and you have to be prepared. That is, you know, that is unfortunately what happens if you lead a political party. You have to be prepared to make a decision and take the risks that go with it. Otherwise, you spend your entire life trying to duck the decision, and you end up nowhere. Well, that's true. But, I mean, that's where Labour and the Tory party have ended up until this moment. But if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, there's a good likelihood that he will be a much more proactive Prime Minister than Theresa May ever was, uh, who really didn't want to do what the job she had been asked to do. So, for the Labour Party... So, you're basically saying to me, I think, that you will accept and, and, and agree with Tom Watson to make Labour the party of Remain. Um, I'm saying I think we've reached that point. That's exactly and so, so you're willing then to give up all of those voters who are very fervently pro-Brexit, who will never vote Labour again? Well, as I say to you, I think a lot of those people are Labour. I don't think they are John, Boris Johnson, natural Boris Johnson supporters. And I think it will be how we approach them. But I am not ruling out that there is a risk, and I'm accepting that. And that's the choice. The choice is... What, what risk do you want to take? Do you want to sit on the fence and see it happen to you when you have no role in it at all? Or do you want to make a bold decision and acknowledge that there'll be some damage and some risk with it? Mm. That is a possibility. I, I'm accepting that. And I don't think Maybe you can I, win. I don't think you can win an election without the northeast of England and other parts of the north of England which voted to leave. Well, we certainly couldn't win an election without having a single uh, MEP in Scotland, and our policy didn't exactly turn out terribly good there, did it? No, it didn't. Absolutely right. It's all going to hell in a handcart, Steve. But listen, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Steve McCabe, Labour MP for Birmingham, Sally Oak, who says that as a Labour MP, he will now be more than happy for Labour to declare itself to be the party of Remain. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Tom Watson is saying exactly the same thing today. If you're a Labour Party member and a Labour voter, I want to hear from you, because what does that mean to you? Does that mean if you are a Brexiteer and you want to leave the European Union, you can never vote Labour again? It's that simple. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we very often talk about the fact that uh, strange things happen on Facebook when you are talking uh, to someone, having a regular conversation with them, and suddenly an advert pops up uh, about the conversation that you were having, trying to sell you something which you didn't realise you actually wanted. I had that happen to me over the weekend with Facebook on the picture front, uh, where a load of pictures popped up because it was Father's Day, and a couple of people, of course, related to me, had posted some pictures, and I got this message that said, facial recognition alert, some pictures of, of what we think might be you have been posted. Now, of course, they were pictures of me, uh, but it slightly worried me that Facebook was informing me that they had recognised those pictures of me because of facial recognition technology, because I was not aware uh, that, in fact, they were even using facial recognition technology. Um, and many, many ministers are now being told that they have to get a grip of precisely what is going on with the surveillance of the public in this country and why it seems to be going on a pace. And nobody really seems to know precisely what is going on, who's in charge of it, how many cameras there are on us at any given moment, and what's going on and what's being done with that particular data that they're collecting. Let's talk to Carly Kind, Director uh, of the Ada Lovelace Institute. Carly, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. How Thanks. are you? Yeah, good. Thanks very much for, uh, for joining me. Now, you say, how are you? How's it going? I'm very well. However, what I don't know is how many times I was photographed on my way into work today, right? Having left my home approximately two miles from here, uh, having walked out into the street, having gone on a bus, having taken a bus to the tube station, having walked through a tube station, having gone on a tube, having arrived at work and come into work. How many times do you reckon I had my picture taken? Well, an important aspect of that, Mike, is that you also had a phone in your pocket the whole time. I did. How did you know that? <laughs> uh, you, as, as, as all of us do. And that means that you are creating an incredible amount of data about yourself everywhere you go, who you speak to, who you're with, what you're searching for on Google, what illness you might be experiencing on any given day, who you're emailing, who you're calling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the, that amount of data paired with a whole range of other pieces of data that you might generate from what time you turn your heating on in the morning to what show, what music, morning news show you watch on your smart television, then, um, for example, which uh, automatic number plate car recognition um, cameras you might pass on your way into work, mm. uh, where you use your Oyster card, all of these pieces of data kind of combine together to create a profile of us, which is in many senses incredibly accurate. Um, and so it's not only about the cameras that we pass in front of, although that certainly at the top of many of our minds, but also the amount of data that we create um, that really makes us, um, really warrants us kind of standing back and saying, what is this world we're living in now where data is king, it's everywhere and um, everybody has it and what rights do we as individuals have to control it and know who uses it and on what conditions? And those are some of the issues that we're trying to grapple with at the Ada Lovelace Institute. You know, how do we make sure that all of that data is being used for the purpose of people rather than companies or government. Right. Well, David Davis, you know, the former Brexit minister, mm -hmm. quoted in the Times today saying that a lot of cameras, particularly um, these facial recognition cameras, which are now being installed in places like shopping centres, 
music mm -hmm. festivals, demos, that kind of thing. Nobody seems to know yet who governs the use of the technology is what he says. And he says it's not a job for the police necessarily. Um, it's a job for Parliament. Do you think he's right about that? I do think he's right about that. I think facial recognition technology is an incredibly uh, powerful and evocative piece of technology. I think all of us might be okay with some forms of monitoring. But when you think about facial recognition technology, it definitely conjures more kind of creepy, futuristic ideas. Um, and it also goes right to the heart of notions of privacy, but not only privacy, around kind of identity and who we are and how we interact with other people on the streets of our cities. And it's true that this technology is being adopted um, across private and public sector without a lot of consideration as to how the public might feel about that. There's some laws which apply in a very piecemeal approach, but there's no overarching legal framework that governs both private and public sector use of the technology. And there doesn't feel like there's a lot of public legitimacy for the technology as well. So I think David Davis is right to call out concerns. Yeah. And my, my question originally at the start of this was, was genuine, you know, because I'm aware that mm. my phone does things uh, and collects data on, on the behalf of some apps that I have. And I'm kind of, mm. I'm, I'm not absolutely okay with it, but I kind of understand that. What I'm not sure about are the number of cameras. And I know that we are the most uh, CCTV-covered nation in the entire world uh, per head of population. But, but this facial recognition stuff seems to be a creeping concern. I mean, I don't yeah. even know if there are any facial recognition cameras on my route to work, but I'd kind of like to know. Yes, I can understand that desire. It, it's probably the case that you're coming into contact with some facial recognition. For example, you spoke about the Facebook instance, yeah. and it's true that Facebook uses facial recognition, and they say that they use it in a way that protects you because they help you find out when other people put photos of you on the internet, and that may be a beneficial use. We know that, for example, in London, the Metropolitan Police or in Cardiff, the South Wales Police have used facial recognition in specific circumstances to um, monitor the public. But also some instances you might not know about include in, um, in grocery stores, facial recognition right. is being rolled out to track where customers are moving throughout the store, um, understand when customers are repeat customers and see their reactions to particular parts of the store. Um, so that kind of private sector, private property use of facial recognition is also becoming more and more popular. Um, we don't have it yet in Britain, but in some countries, facial recognition is being trialled in schools to monitor how uh, attentive children are to teachers. Okay. And, and see, that's when it starts to get a bit tricky for me. I mean, if you're being well, watched in a supermarket... Do they know who you are or are they simply following a face, as it were? It depends what data sets they're using. They could, you know, in theory, they could be trying to identify you uniquely. And I think that that's where the technology, technology is moving. So that's really the most frightening I, I agree with you right. for. I mean, there was a case, was there not, recently of a guy who um, refused to have his face um, sort of captured by one of these cameras. I think, was it in Cardiff or Bristol or somewhere? Um, you'll probably know better than me. And there was a yeah. court case. as He covered his face up and refused to show his face. I think there's, there's been two instances. There's a court case um, ongoing, you're right, in Cardiff. But I think what you might be referring to is there was a, a live trial of the recognition technology in Romford in London and a man covered up his face and the police fined him for covering up his face and refusing to right. submit to the technology. That's right, and yeah. that, it's, it's incredibly worrying, particularly when the legal uh, powers for doing so are very unclear, actually. I think the Metropolitan Police are, are pushing ahead with this out of the desire to want to improve their own capability to protect security, but at the same time, 
without a legal framework in place, it, it does it raises real concerns about, you know, how legitimate this is. And really, is it fair to the public to be imposing this without actually uh, sensitising the public to this as a, a tool that the police might use and really finding out if the public accepts it as well. Right. And, I mean... What is the position? I mean, does it vary? It sounds to me like it's sort of it's very much arbitrary. If you if you did, for example, what that guy did, uh, you may or may not get fined by the police. One, depending on whether they see you or not, but also it, there's no clear policy on this, is there? As far as I understand, I think that was quite a dubious fine. Uh, you know, legal. So you say that again? <laughs> yeah, I, I think they used some kind of disorderly conduct rule to find him there because they had they had said that they were doing a public test. Right. Um, more generally speaking, you know, let's put it this way, Mike. There's no facial recognition act. There's no one overarching law. There are little pieces of laws. There are existing police powers that we might be able to sandwich or squeeze its facial recognition into. But in terms of the legitimacy of the technology, you know, given how concerning it is, we probably want to see an overarching legal framework that's very explicit. And that certainly doesn't exist. Right. And is most of this kind of monitoring being done by, shall we say, um, outsourced companies? For example, if you are the City of London or you are, um, you know, the mayor's office or something like that, are you uh, basically monitoring it from, from that office or are you off monitoring it off-site somewhere and it's being collected by a private sort of commercial company? That's a good question. Most of this technology is developed by private companies but then sold to public sector entities. So I don't know the details in London or in Wales, but I expect that they are private sector application software that the police buy and use in-house. So that means that the data is most likely being stored within those police forces. But importantly, um, these, these pieces of software have to get trained and developed um, on data sets outside of, uh, of the police force. And that leads to additional concerns that you might have seen in the press um, recently, whereby when data facial recognition algorithms are trained, they're often done, they're often trained by data sets that don't represent a ethnically diverse population. So some data sets might be overwhelmingly uh, male or overwhelmingly white. And that means that the facial recognition algorithm itself doesn't get very good at recognising non-white, non-male faces. And as a result, there are real concerns around the accuracy of these algorithms. To give you an example, um, last year, uh, the ACLU, which is an American civil liberties organisation, did a, a test of Amazon technology. So Amazon being a private company that develops facial recognition technology, and that technology misidentified 28 members of the American Congress as criminals, according to the technology. Um, they also found that the, when, when the software is false, it is false far more likely in the case of people of colour, so Asian, black, ethnic minorities. 40% um, of all false matches pertain to people of colour. So you can see that the technology itself is also not very good at the moment, and that is another one of the concerns. Right. Now, we've got a guy called Tony Porter, who I hadn't heard of until today, who's apparently the surveillance mm. camera commissioner. Um, mm. So is he sort of like um, um, a czar, as we used to call it in tabloid newspapers? Uh, he's, he's sort of in charge of surveillance camera technology and, uh, uh, and the rolling out of legislation, if there is any? Part of that, he's an independent person that oversees how surveillance cameras are used right. by... 
Because he's got some worrying stats. I mean, he talks about a time when uh, the Trafford Shopping Centre in Manchester uh, was asked to monitor facial data over a six-month period on something like 8 million people. And all they managed to do uh, was catch one person uh, who got a positive hit because he was wanted on recall to prison. He's saying... Oh, sorry, it's 18 million rather than 8 million. He's, he's saying, what has happened to the 18 million people um, who have been exposed to having their digital profile taken? And who's dealing with that? And where is the data going? Yeah, absolutely. And Big Brother Watch, another civil liberties organisation, has done some really good work on this. And they found that where, even when courts have ordered that the police need to delete photographs of people acquired during these processes, they haven't done that. They've also found inaccuracy rates of up to 98%. Yeah. So right. I think Tony Porter's concerns are, are you know, are very well-founded and, and he highlights them very well. Um, and I think he has called and others have now called for some serious thinking to be done about exactly how we, you know, how we regulate this technology, what policy needs to be put in place, what law needs to be put in place to make sure uh, it's done properly and accurately. OK. It's a fascinating subject. We'll have to come back to it, I'm sure, Carly. Thank you very much indeed. Carly Kinder, Director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, uh, talking about the remarkable amount now of not just surveillance cameras, but also of facial recognition capture. Now, I don't know what you think about this. Uh, I imagine you agree with me that I don't want it to be happening if it's, one, not particularly reliable, and two, uh, if it is, in fact, using our data in some way that we don't know about. Surely we must be told. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We'll take your calls. Coming up next. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, as we know, 50% of marriages will end in divorce. More and more people are getting married, however, at the moment. So I don't know whether those figures are going to change or whether those numbers are going to change. But a bit like being Prime Minister, you always know uh, that more than likely there's a very good chance that it will all end in tears. Let's talk to Vanessa Lloyd-Platt, uh, an expert in tears and in divorce, it has to be said. Vanessa, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon to you. How the devil are you? I've not spoken to you for a very long time. I know. Uh, we're very, very busy. People seem to hate each other at the moment, which <laughs> is good for business, but terrible morale-wise. Yes. It's absolutely been horrendous. I don't know what's wrong with it's, everyone. I, I, have, you, have you had any Brexit-related divorces with people yes. saying, oh, I'm leave, she's remain, we can't get on? Well, believe it or not, yes, we have. Um, That's amazing, families isn't it? at war. We've had people so stressed out about Brexit and worrying about the future. And every time Mr. Corbyn comes on, we get a complete rise in people wanting to divorce because he scares the hell out of well, everyone. Well, I, I saw like, uh, yesterday, although I hadn't had a chance to talk about it yet, was that he's got this new, brand new idea of uh, of stopping and parents from gifting any money to their children and leaving houses to them and all the rest of it. Was anything Absolutely. over one hundred twenty-five thousand? quid you're going to get taxed yeah so that's made everybody a shudder again and everybody gets frightened and everyone gets stressed and they start arguing so we should be grateful in some respects to mr corbyn that one useful thing has happened that divorce lawyers are very grateful <laughs> well i don't think you're going to lose money being a divorce lawyer vanessa as, as i'm sure you know <laughs> but some of the things that people are arguing about in divorce cases is are becoming quite ridiculous like for example you know who gets custody of the wine collection i mean that that you couldn't get much more middle class than that could you? Well, no, you couldn't. I mean, we certainly don't find it in certain categories of cases, but um, there was a report that came out in the Daily Mail today from a, a leading divorced firm saying that they've had masses of increase in people arguing about their wine collection. Well, we've had cases about wine, and it usually involves the following. My wife or husband's drinking too much, or they've purchased too much wine. Um, as to the value of, 
divorce lawyers have to understand the names of the important investment wines, otherwise you could miss out on a fortune for your client. <laughs> well, right? I, I seem to remember, do you remember that, um, uh, that sort of TV drama, I think it was a BBC, which was all about divorce lawyers, and uh, not necessarily very high-paid lawyers, and there was a case where this couple were getting divorced. Um, Stephen Tomlinson, I think, was the guy, and the wife just basically went into the wine cellar and drank all the wine, just opened all the bottles and had a drink, a sort of sip out of each one, bottle out of each one, knowing that, uh, that the bottles would then be worthless. We've actually had a case like that uh, where it, the, the wine collection was worth one and a half million. The wife had a little party while the husband was abroad right. and drank over half a million pounds worth of wine. I mean, of course, there was a very fa famous case of Lady Sally Moon who gave away um, each bottle of her husband's vintage collection to all the villagers. They woke up in the morning, the villagers, and found a bottle of wine outside every front door. <laughs> and that, she felt, was her exacting revenge. That's because brilliant. of the way he behaved. But one of the things that people sometimes do, and it's really horrendous, is if they put up the temperature in the wine cellar. Right. And that just ruins the whole collection. But I, I, I find it very amusing, some of the names of these expensive wines. My favourite one by far was the Screaming Eagle Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> uh, 1992 that sold for half a million pounds. Blimey. One bottle. That's I mean, it is insane. Um, but yes, we have had those cases. Um, they haven't been massively increasing, as it's been suggested by a lawyer. But what has been increasing of people fighting about has been pets. Yes, I was going to. I was going to ask you about that just before yeah. we could move on to pets. It was called. It was, the show was called The Split, and if you haven't seen it, it was quite yes. good. Stephen yeah. Mangan, Mira Sial was the woman who ended up in the uh, That's in right. the wine but... cellar. It was quite funny. Anyway, yeah, tell us about pets. Well, pets are a much more difficult thing, I suppose, to uh, to organise because you could always split a wine cellar. You can't split a pet, can you? Well, people are. And that's what's so strange. I mean, some people, particularly with dogs and cats, etc., people are thinking that if we split our time and have the pet half the time each, yeah. that that's the right thing. But um, about four years ago, we drew up the world's first pet nuptial agreement, right. where we, we looked at, could people sign up before they even get married, so that if there's an argument about a pet, they know what should happen. And what a part of our research was very interesting, that actually you shouldn't necessarily divide a dog's time equally in half with each other. If you've got different environments, different food, different way of dealing with them, it can actually cause them psychiatric problems. So we have a lot of very psychiatric pets knocking around after divorce. Yes, I um, bet. I mean, that must be very difficult, must it? Because, I mean, if you have, if, if they haven't got kids... Um, and to turn up at somebody's house with the dog and say, here he is for the weekend, I'll come back and get him on Sunday night or Monday. I mean, that's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, it is tricky, but it's been happening because if people cannot decide what happens, that's what they've been doing. But it's not necessarily in the best interest of the pet. But we've also had some very weird pet cases. So mm. people arguing over the koi cup. The most difficult one was when the couple were arguing about their llamas and right. what should happen to them. Should they be <laughs> split up or not? And I have to be honest with you, I don't have a great experience of llamas. No, I don't believe them to be solitary creatures, though, so you could always argue that they have to stay together, I suppose. We did. <laughs> did you win? 
Yeah, we did. But the, the, the worst one of all was we had a client that was arguing and arguing with his wife over the little set of garden tools. There was a trowel and a little digger. And a thousand pounds later, I went out and I bought a shiny new set and gave it to my client and said, enough, right. here's a new shiny one for you. Absolutely right. Because, I mean, the other thing I imagine people must argue a lot about is cars, you know, particularly oh, yeah. rather nice cars. Yeah. I mean, we, we have at the moment, there's a very, very big case. We're not running it before the High Court where um, there was a whole load of incredibly expensive, super fast supercars being bought. And they are arguing about those with the wife saying, I put up the money for it. And him saying, um, well, actually, um, you, you didn't put up the money. Well, you might put the money up, but it was a joint enterprise. And this is always the row. Who gets the supercars? And uh, the way we sometimes do it is is we say sell them and split the proceeds. Yes, that's often the best way. Because I was going to ask you what you made of the whole Bezos uh, divorce scenario where Jeff Bezos has given billions and billions of dollars to uh, the wife that he's just split up from, Mackenzie Bezos, uh, earlier this year. She then declared that she was going to give all the money away. I suppose once you've given it, there's not much you can do about that, is there? There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I suppose if she gave it away the very next day, um, he might have been able to go to the courts and say, look, um, you know, it was not intended to be like this mm. and it, it's an interrupting, intervening event and therefore I want to revisit the whole thing. But I think he would have looked so churlish, it would have impacted on the shares of Amazon. So they thought, he thought, best leave it alone. But he can't be a happy bunny over it. No, I wouldn't have thought so, because it does make him look... I mean, it's also all very well for her to say we're giving it to good causes. But why don't you give it to them now? Why aren't they going to wait until, you know, you've, you've, you've passed on or something? I think it was a revenge thing. I suspect it was to make him look bad yes. because he hasn't done sufficient charitable things in her eyes. Right. So she may or may not do it. It was just to annoy. Yes, I mean, that's the trouble. There's still no legislation that covers that, is there? You're like, whether the, your wife or husband ruins all the wine or smashes, drives, oh, your car, drives your car into a lake, is there anything you can do about something oh, like that? Oh, yes, there certainly is, and we have. Um, you know, we, we had a case once where the a wife... Um, that, sorry, the husband was told that she wanted half the car, mm. and what he did was he cut the car in half and towed the best half to her <laughs> lawyers, and uh, it was litigation misconduct. Really? And therefore, okay. it was deducted from his settlement. Any revenge like this of a financial nature, the other side will be compensated. So revenge is not necessarily sweet or left best cold if you cause yourself a major problem. Lady Sally Moon learnt that in her divorce case. Yes. Now, so anyone listening to this, be warned. Do not get too carried away with the, the revenge side. Now, I'm going to ask you a question which is not entirely unrelated to divorce, but is a bit more uh, on the kind of social... Uh, um, and moral scale. If Boris Johnson becomes the next Prime Minister of this country, right, should he go into Downing Street with his new girlfriend or should they marry first? Because like, there's a big debate going on with certain people that I talk to about, um, you know, apparently nobody's been married inside of Downing Street since 1888 or something like that. Um, I just wonder whether if he's in the midst of a divorce, he might be better off not moving his new girlfriend in until the divorce is done and dusted. 
Well, I think it's how you perceive people who live together. Since there's probably near of 4 million people at least living together in this country, I think we've moved on from being very square and, and um, judgmental. I think if he's the man for the job and this is the woman who is going to make him a better prime minister, then move her in even before him because, frankly, she's doing a fabulous job for him. Yes, and I'm assuming that then uh, you will know probably on the grapevine, even if you did, you wouldn't tell me, but uh, that Boris Johnson's divorce is not going to be problematic. He's not going to be hauled before uh, the judge anytime soon. Actually, you don't know. Uh, nobody quite knows, but I suspect if he's sensible, he'll come to a very early agreement with his wife um, and Marina and, and have a confidentiality clause so that no one can discuss the terms. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Well, Vanessa, delightful as ever to talk to you. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us and enjoy the rest of the day. Vanessa Lloyd-Platt, wonderful woman, uh, one woman who knows all there is to know about divorce law. Uh, and if you are thinking about getting divorced, uh, she would be a very good person to talk to, I can tell you. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. Uh, we've just been talking to Vanessa Lloyd-Platt about divorce. Samantha says, I'll never have the problem of expensive wine and fancy cars, but I'd fight my husband to the last for my cats. I don't think I'd want to be getting divorced from an actual divorce lawyer either. Uh, I'd feel at a distinct disadvantage. I think that's probably true to say. Uh, although you never know. I mean, if you're actually married to a divorce lawyer, sometimes uh, you could have the advantage because he might be going so uh, far the other way to try and make sure that you didn't think he was such a horrible person that you might be able to do better than otherwise. But let's see. Let's go to the calls. Mark wants to talk uh, about facial recognition. Mark in Castleford, very good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Mike. How are you um, doing? Yeah, I'm fine. The facial recognition, I want just to share something with you to, to understand just how far it's gone and people don't realise. Um, I went blind about 10 years ago right. and... We in the blind community use a lot of apps that are fantastic and they're all based on this thing called AI, artificial intelligence. Right. I've got an app that can take a picture of a, a piece of paper, uh, a letter, and it will read it back to me. I've got apps which will read barcodes. Anyway, there's one app that I've got which you can take a picture of a room and it will tell you what's in that room. Okay. okay. If, you know, right now. And is it like sort of closed caption description? Is that how it works? Yeah, well, what we do, Mike, is it, it reads it out to us because when you have Apple, you have this thing called voiceover, which is built into the technology, so it reads out what it sees to you. It's okay. very clever, All right. you know. But facial recognition, this is how far it's gone, Mike, okay? So I was messing around with the one which, which takes a picture of a room, and so on Saturday there was the cricket on, and I just took a picture of, of the room. And, and this is what it said, bearing in mind facial recognition, and the cricket was on. It was Australia that was playing and it, it read back to me, it said, a flat-screen television with a picture of Aaron Finch, who happened to be the Australian captain. Really? So what it had actually done is the, the AI had not only recognised the television, it actually said a flat-screen television on top of a stand, it then recognised that it was Aaron Finch that, was on, that happened to be being interviewed on the television at mm. the time. That's amazing. So, yeah, if you think of that, Mike, and, and those of us in the blind community have been using this sort of technology for a number of years, and I've seen it even in the last two years, 
how it's really, really sharpened up. Yeah. I mean, but, does it know, work, and you might not be able to answer this, does it work on people that you know, for example, say that somebody's in your Facebook group or something, I don't know if you're yeah, on Facebook, that, that, will it, will exactly, it recognise them? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening, Mike, which is why I'm, I'm ringing up to say it's beginning to caption it now. Mm. So I so part of that, um, that, that particular app, I can take a picture of a friend and it might say a 50-year-old male with brown hair looking grumpy. But then I can caption it. So every time that that picture appears, it will give that friend's name. But what it's beginning to do, Mike, and you're right with Facebook, it's starting to capture names in Facebook. Mm. And you can, sleep, you can see that this artificial intelligence, this, it's like I think of it as like a spider's web. It's growing ever wider as it's pulling more captioned uh, people's faces within its, within its net, if you see what yes. I mean. I mean, I can see where it's useful, like all of these things in some ways, but, but you know, slightly um, sinister in other ways, if you like. Right? Yeah, it is, Mike. It's fan it is fantastically useful, but you have to have limits, don't you? And that's, I think that's going to be the big battle. It's not so much how we can, how we can limit it, but how the heck can we enforce yeah. these limits? Well, it's great I mean, for I, you, right? But it's absolutely brilliant for you. But who else is, is accessing it would be my question. You know, who else is watching who you meet, for example? Who else is, is putting together a file on where you go? You know, I just don't know. Oh, yeah, and that's it all the time, Mike. It's not, for, for those of us who use it, it's great, but there, there are really, really quite, in, quite, I suppose, possibly sinister implications. I mean, and just to share with you another one, and mm. this, this feeds in with the Huawei thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, got, I've got a really clever app called Picture This, and what it can do is it can take a picture of virtually anything and it'll tell you what it is. So I was just randomly going around the garden taking pictures of various plants and flowers, mm. and it gets them every time. But Mike, it all comes back in Chinese. Really? And yeah, and the app's all Chinese. And so oh, the, the app's describing flowers in Chinese. Yeah, no. What it is is the app's it describes the flowers in English. All right. But it's but it's obvious, Mike, that the captions are English because when you use the buttons on the app, they're all in Chinese. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, so so the app is actually, and, and the, the intelligence being used is obviously based in China. And, mm. and, this, and, and then again, I start to think, I, I'm beginning to put together now the, the dots. And you think, yeah, people are going to have access to all this knowledge and all this information, because within that, they obviously get your location and various yeah. bits and pieces. Well, I'm, I was thinking when we were talking to the, to the guest earlier, if you're down the supermarket and your face is getting recognised as being down the supermarket, what's to stop some unscrupulous supermarket employee from passing on the fact that you're there to some burglars and they go and burgle your house. Well, this is it, Mike. Because they've got your address from your loyalty card. Exactly. Especially if it starts to... If, especially if it starts to become real-time information yeah. as well. So that all of a sudden, the, the, I'm sure they'll be aware that they can actually track your location because there's always a little location stamp that goes with these um, th these images or whatever. And that's... I've seen what I've seen in the, the apps that I use. I've seen in the last, they've only just come on the market really in the last two years, but I've seen an amazing amount of interconnectivity. And you can see the filling the gaps in between the knowledge so quickly. Mm. The fact, as I say, the fact that that one could immediately recognize who that was on the television. Now, it wouldn't have done that a year ago. 
and it's, it's moving very get, fast. It's fascinating yeah, stuff, once Mark. Get captioned, Mike. That's it. Yeah, you're off. Good stuff, Mark in Castleford. Thanks very much indeed. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show ten to one Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.